Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. Uh, This is Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with Israelis, experts and practitioners in the fields of military intelligence and this time particularly diplomacy. And our special guest uh, today is Ambassador Ronnie Leshno-Yar. Thank you for coming. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you. A distinguished career in the Israeli foreign ministry, culminating in being Israel's first official ambassador to the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We will get to that uh, further down in our conversation, perhaps two conversations. So uh, why did you decide, uh, out of all uh, possible professions, to join the Israeli Foreign Ministry? Um, Look, uh, I'm a Tel Aviv boy. Uh, studied uh, uh, in Tel Aviv in my primary uh, school, um, secondary school, university, even kindergarten in uh, in in Tel Aviv, somewhere in Tel Aviv, in Shabazi Street. Um, uh, my uh, my uh, track in high school was Oriental studies, uh, Arab studies. So I studied Arabic. This is how I uh, uh, came eventually in, during my military days to uh, the intelligence corps. And uh, part of my military career was to be a military advisor in Singapore, back then in 1978, a long time ago. And I fell in love with uh, that kind of diplomacy. I worked with the Singapore Armed Forces, and I fell in love with trips to overseas, uh, to foreign countries, and with the trade of uh, uh, diplomacy and uh, and uh, the, com- the but what does Oriental studies have to do with the Far East? Uh, uh, the reason why I was sent to uh, to Singapore was to uh, simply train the uh, Singapore Armed Forces. Uh, Oriental studies, I uh, I mean by that Middle East studies, not Far East uh, uh, of uh, studies. I'm an Arabist by education, from high school in Tel Aviv, and uh, from my military. Uh, so days. so when you uh, was when you were drafted into the uh, army, this was right after the uh, Yom Kippur War or around uh, the time? It was one month after the, after Yom Kippur War, exactly one month. When I was there, it was questionable whether or not they will take young uh, draftees like me to the intelligence corps instead of sending them to the armor corps. Be- because the uh, ranks were depleted. Exactly. Many, many tank uh, commanders, exactly. especially, even more than other crewmen, exactly. were killed or wounded. And and uh, there was a fast track exactly. to being an officer in the armored corps. But right. but because you had um, the qualities and the bag- skills right. to, to both listen, read, write Arabic. Right. Um, I, was, I was taken to the intelligence corps where I spent eight years from 1973 until 1981. Uh, most enjoyable uh, um, uh, years, uh, which taught me a lot, uh, expanded my network, 
uh, um, I will not name the specific unit where I serve, but it's a, a well-known mili- uh, intelligence military uh, unit in in, in some in of whose some of whose commanding officers have already participated Absolutely. in this I program. Know, of course, of course, of course, uh, and open my eyes. To the international uh, arena, to diplomacy, uh, to foreign countries. Uh, But you were you were a relatively junior officer. Uh, I retired as a captain. Um, usually, more senior officers in the military and in other security services look down on the foreign service. First of all, because most Israeli diplomats are not privy to the same secrets that uh, military officers and especially intelligence officers are. And for some reason, um, it is uh, considered um, not a less honorable profession, but outside the inner core of Israel's defense establishment. Was that your sentiment too when you were in Eurofon, before you switched to the foreign ministry? Not at all. Not at all. Perhaps I was not senior enough to look down at the diplomats. They were, it's, it's true, your characterization is true, but they were wrong because the contribution of uh, Israel, at least Israel's foreign service to uh, Israel's national security is huge and valuable. And I believe that my colleagues in the military and security establishment appreciate our contribution to Israel's national uh, security in different uh, uh, aspects, uh, uh, which are very, by the way, very um, relevant today when we speak about the judicial reform and uh, the exposure of uh, uh, Israeli officers and politicians to international law, international humanitarian law, uh, uh, etc. Where they uh, could very well be arrested because of some international warrant. Right, exactly. And, uh, and, And I spent half of my career defending Israeli soldiers in many different capacities in Israel and uh, abroad, but perhaps we'll come to that later. So um, in 1981, uh, you uh, moved over to the foreign ministry. Was that a lateral move? Uh, you simply one day um, took your uniform, uh, hung it um, uh, in your uh, basement or wherever, uh, and then switched uh, to a civilian suit? So it was a one-year process. <clears throat> from the moment that I decided that I want to become a diplomat. And what led me to that was, as I said, my overseas trips uh, and my university education in the Tel Aviv University. I studied uh, Arabic and history of the Middle, uh, of the Middle East. Um, um, uh, and, and the process, it was a one-year process of testing and uh, exams and, uh, and, uh, and uh, standing uh, in front of committees until the day that I was, I was informed that uh, uh, I was accepted to the Foreign Service. Uh, so, uh, and that happened in November 1981. And in fact, I was in a good place in, <coughs> in, a good place in the military. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, I was a captain on my way to become a major uh, with <coughs> a potential brilliant career in the intelligence corps. And in fact, I dropped down in the ladder to the most basic uh, status in Israel's bureaucracy, Israel's foreign ministry, as a cadet in the foreign uh, <laughs> ministry, uh, which was a huge, a pure pleasure for me to start from scratch and a good uh, moment in my professional life because I believe that whatever you do, you have to start from the bottom, not from the top. Were there many candidates for 
positions of cadets uh, at that time, because now, of course, 40-odd uh, years later, um, the world is open, travel is relatively <coughs> cheap. But at that time, many Israelis looked for adventure, uh, a way of seeing the world, uh, and perhaps uh, to express uh, their uh, talents. Um, were uh, there many more candidates than the capacity of the um, foreign service um, school? So, so you have to keep in mind that back then in the 1980s, in fact, 1980, um, Israelis didn't travel abroad as they used to do now. Uh, government service was very appealing. So thousands and thousands of young uh, university graduates applied for this uh, uh, position. I'll give you one, uh, one uh, piece of, uh, of data. In my first day in the cadets course, um, um, the head of the foreign ministry administration uh, discussed with us uh, this situation exactly and, uh, and asked, who is the Arabist in the room? So I was the only one that raised my hand. And he said, look, we desperately wanted to recruit Arabists for the foreign service. 70 Arabists applied, only one was accepted. Why? Because it was me. <laughs> because, because they didn't pass the threshold. Uh, of, of other requirements. Yes, uh, right. So, so their, their language proficiency was not language, enough. Language, uh, you know, human skills, uh, uh, general uh, knowledge of, uh, of uh, history, uh, etc. So, but, but as you mm -hmm. say, this was a unique time. This was after the Sadat visit and the Camp David Accords. Um, a full peace with an embassy in Cairo was on the horizon, right. and perhaps <clears throat> more would open in the Arab world. But also, uh, these were the first years of the political research uh, department or institute of the uh, foreign ministry, which was set up as one of the lessons of the Yom Kippur War, right. to be a co-equal with Mossad and with military intelligence. Uh, did you know whether you were destined to go abroad or to the uh, uh, research department? I came to the foreign ministry to be a diplomat, full stop, not a researcher, nothing uh, but a real diplomat. This is what I wanted to do. In the foreign ministry, they said, ah, this guy is from the intelligence corps, let's send him to the research uh, center. I was lucky that fairly quickly uh, I was sent uh, to the Egypt department, which dealt with the first agreements between Israel and uh, uh, Egypt. But you're right. In my first month, I spent uh, a lot of time in the research department and I saw the gap between the kind of intelligence that they have in the military and the very little intelligence that we had in the foreign ministry. That shouldn't stop the diplomats from being effective in what they are supposed to do. You who, don't was, who was superior regarding the intelligence, the military? Of course, of course. In, in, Why? It, it's a matter of classification of sources. I think that uh, the military, first, it's a matter of turf battles. They wanted to keep the intelligence for themselves. And also they didn't trust the civilians uh, because we are exposed to other civilians from different countries, to the media, etc. I can tell you discreetly that most of the leaks that you have come from the military and not from the foreign service. Fine, let, let there be more <laughs> uh, if, uh, if possible. But, but um, the idea was that uh, you're a diplomat, you're entertaining other diplomats. Right. 
inadvertently, <clears throat> something might slip, um, even uh, though uh, you meant no harm, but your colleague from the United States or Germany or wherever will write a note, cable home, I saw Ronnie uh, at dinner, and he let out that uh, his minister is going to some Arab country. Right, but the foreign diplomats also meet, meet senior military uh, officer, and I can guarantee to you, uh, Amir, that Israeli diplomats will not dare brief journalists, foreign or local, as our milita- military colleagues are doing. I may, in my, one of my trips to Washington, uh, uh, before I was posted to Washington, I was shocked to see in the lobby of my hotel, senior military officers briefing Israeli journalists. For me, it was a no-no. For them, it was okay and normal. So because the, image, the image is different than the reality. Because their home audience is more important uh, to them than briefing local American uh, right. Right. Uh, journalists. Right. They, they want to be, to be written up in Israel. Right. But we, the diplomats, are very careful not to brief diplomats without clear permission from our superiors. So, and also the cables from the uh, embassies uh, do provide an important source of raw intelligence. This is true. If, if the intelligence professionals know how to um, uh, enrich their assessments uh, because of it. This is true. And it's even more important nowadays, uh, considering technology and global uh, uh, Affairs. So, uh, and I think that uh, our colleagues in the military appreciate the value of the raw intelligence that we bring throughout our ex- exchanges and engagement with different officials in foreign uh, countries. You, you know, um, when one looks at it very simplistically, one would believe that intelligence comes in through a fire hose or several fire hoses of uh, signal intelligence, uh, agent reports, diplomatic cables. All of that goes to the uh, research and assessment uh, officers in the military and in Mossad, and they later decide how little you in the foreign ministry, who um, may have provided some of the raw intelligence, how much of the polished product you will get back. This is insane. I believe that in order to give the good advice to the foreign minister and prime minister in the field of diplomacy, the intelligence or the information that I have is enough for me to do that. So I don't need the top secret information they have in Tel Aviv. Okay? What I need is my, in, my uh, intelligentsia. It's my uh, background and the information that we gather as diplomats throughout our engagement with other diplomats, senior uh, uh, officials in foreign countries. Uh, uh, so let's say an informed newspaper reader mm-hmm. knows perhaps 60% mm-hmm. of uh, the entire core of intelligence available to people in the inside. You, as a diplomat, uh, know 90 or 95%, and you said that the, the uh, top five or 10% are not that crucial to understanding the world and our region. Amir, there was a point of time when I thought that I don't need the intelligence 
from the military at all in order to craft a good advice for the minister. Okay? So uh, it's not about how much intelligence I have, 95% or 80% or 60%. Uh, 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 Our ambassador in Washington knows much more than the captain in Tel Aviv who covers Israel-U.S. relations. Full stop. And then when the cabinet uh, has a session for the annual or semi-annual uh, threat assessment, military intelligence presents also the global picture, even though you in the foreign ministry are, are experts. That's amazing. I, I, used in, I, I used to sit in cabinet meetings discussing issues which were under my direct responsibilities, for example, UN, uh, UN-Israel relations, and the first to brief the cabinet was the colonel or the brigadier from the military, who knew nothing about the UN or Israel-UN relations. But that's the way it is in Israel. I can't do much about it. <laughs> so you were posted abroad. Uh, what, what were your uh, first posts in the so I in 1980s? My, I started my career in Singapore. Because I served as a military advisor to Singapore, fascinating three years in Singapore. Uh, the highlight of that visit, of that uh, posting, was the visit of the then President Chaim Herzog, the late Chaim Herzog, to Singapore, which was an historical visit in, in 2007, I think. Um, no, 1987. 1980. I'm sorry, 1987, 1987. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, so President Herzog, his, wife, his late wife, and Michal Herzog, the uh, wife of the current president of Israel. His daughter-in-law. Right, came to, uh, to Singapore as part of a Far East uh, trip, uh, which included um, uh, the Philippines. No, not, not the Philippines, I'm sorry. Uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Australia. Why was that the highlight? Because you joined him, escorted him, and you, you got to see the uh, most the, the, important the, officials. It was the top state visit from Israel to Singapore since the establishment of diplomatic relationship. And it was the first time that the Singapore president publicly thanked Israel for the military assistance to Singapore. And you should know that in the 1960s, when Singapore just received, uh, got its independence in 1964, they... Lee Kuan Yew. was the, 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 the... Prime Minister. In fact, David Marshall. The Jewish David Marshall was the first Prime Minister of Singapore for a brief period of time. And then Lee Kuan Yew, of course, the legendary Lee Kuan Yew, whom I had the pleasure to and honor to meet. Um, uh, he felt uh, threatened by his mighty Muslim neighbors, Malaysia and Namely Indonesia. Malaysia and Indonesia. And he uh, uh, appealed to non-aligned countries, his allies in the non-aligned movement, to come to his support. India, Pakistan, Egypt, they refused because of their either fear or alliance with Indonesia and Malaysia. So discreetly he came to us and Israel immediately said, yes, we will help you militarily. And, we so, and, and because there was a similarity in the uh, few against the many, the Chinese minority in Singapore, surrounded by uh, uh, hundreds of millions, even, right. especially in right. Indonesia, uh, Muslims. And of course, Israel had a similar position. And also Israel, especially <laughs> after the 1967 war, had uh, a revered military right. force. And But one should also uh, remark here, that following the 1973 war, when Israel felt that it was left alone, except for American help, 
Israel looked for other places around the world, even though uh, they were not uh, top of the list prestige-wise. Uh, South Africa, the Republic of South Africa, Iran, and Singapore. Yeah, so, so, so the alliance between Israel and Singapore is fascinating, fascinating. Until this very uh, uh, day, I will not elaborate, uh, but I think that Singapore looked at Israel as a model. Lee Kuan Yew admired uh, um, uh, Israel. Uh, and uh, for me, as a Israel, young Israeli officer, to spend some time in Singapore was pure pleasure. Uh, what did Israel get out of it? Uh, was it mostly funding for research, development, and production of uh, systems, various systems? That too, but perhaps it's better not to elaborate uh, at this point of time. This is the right place to elaborate <laughs> on, on everything, but uh, I have to respect uh, your reticence. Um, so, uh, in addition to Singapore, Australia... So, so I moved from uh, uh, Singapore to Australia, um, uh, down under, as they say, too boring, boring year, because there are no secrets in Singapore, in, in Australia. Uh, against what we had in Singapore. There are only secrets in Singapore and no secrets in Australia. Everything is in newspapers. So, so what, what <laughs> was and is Israel's interest in Oceania, in uh, Australia, New Zealand, the various uh, islands? I will make, uh, I will, I will, you know, separate Australia from the rest of the countries. Uh, with all due respect to New Zealand, there is a big and important Jewish community in Australia, in Sydney and Melbourne. It's, a, it's, a, it's an economic power. Uh, it's a Western power. It's part of the five eyes. Uh, uh, which five day, eyes for intelligence. Right. This is the, the, the Anglo-Saxon yeah. alliance, which one day I hope that Israel will join uh, in, in one way or the other. Um, uh, and the then prime minister was Bob Hawke, the legendary Bob Hawke, who was really a strong friend of Israel, the Labour Party, the Labour Movement. But unfortunately for me, I was there when the, the first Indifada started in 1980. Late 87, it started. Right, late 87. So throughout my two years in, uh, in Australia, I had to struggle with uh, strong criticism of Israel uh, in Australia, in the media, uh, in parliament. By whom? Uh, human rights uh, advocates? Right, right. And there is a strong Palestinian presence in, uh, in, uh, in Australia. Uh, very, very active uh, 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 in the public there. Um, so that was, uh, it was difficult to... Uh, but you, you were not the ambassador. No, I was the number two. We were only two. <laughs> uh, the DCM. Also, the DCM, right. I was very young. I was the first secretary only. Um, the guy that I replaced was much more senior. Uh, my ambassador was an experienced diplomat. I've learned a lot from him, Tzvi Keidar. Uh, but uh, it was so far from Israel. There was no internet, no telephone connection, no newspapers, no radio, nothing. We were totally isolated, totally isolated. So I was happy to return to Israel after but two years. Were they interested at headquarters here in what you had uh, to cable, or they were so preoccupied with their urgent business that they uh, gave you the impression, listen, Ronnie, you're in Australia, enjoy come back after a couple of years. In the meantime, let us go about our business. So let's uh, frame it in positive terms. The Oceania department was very interested. Okay. The rest, not so. <laughs> you came back. And I came back. I spent um, uh, four years in the research department. 
uh, doing what? Covering the PLO. Again, fascinating uh, period of time from 1989 until 1993. Uh, Oslo was at the background. Uh, but in addition to my research responsibility, I, uh, Yossi Balin and Shimon Peres uh, um, uh, uh, in fact uh, asked me to do several things for them. One of them was to be the coordinator of the Israeli team to the multilateral negotiations on Palestinian refugees. So hold it for a second. 1989, Um, Shimon Peres is the finance minister. He is no longer at the foreign ministry. Yossi Balin, whom you mentioned, moved from being the director general of the foreign ministry to the finance ministry. But of course, uh, they um, undertook various initiatives. Then uh, Peres had to leave the government in 1990. But right after Desert Shield, Desert Storm, there was the Madrid conference. And for the first time, uh, a Palestinian Uh, representation on a joint Jordanian-Palestinian delegation. And, and the Madrid conference, uh, which was hatched by Secretary of State James Baker, uh, was a huge success in launching the, the peace process, one of whose tracks was the multilateral right. um, discussion. Go right. ahead, please. Right. So one of the four tracks was the uh, working group on refugees. I was the coordinator of the group. Uh, the chairman of the Israeli team was Shlomo Benami, Professor Shlomo Benami. Uh, the ambassador to uh, Spain. Right. To Madrid. Right. Uh, and, and later the foreign later minister. Foreign minister. Uh, he is, you know, uh, very intelligent and, uh, and well-known uh, historian. Uh, but he was at that position only briefly, only for three, four months. Uh, we had one trip together uh, to different uh, European countries. Uh, Uh, capitals and to Washington to discuss Palestinian refugee issue. And then we traveled to Ottawa for the first meeting of uh, the working group. So let me ask you before we are coming to the end of our first conversation. Um, in various uh, uh, points, at various uh, periods, Israel uh, expressed its intention, its willingness to absorb uh, up to 100,000 people. Uh, Palestinian refugees. Now there are probably 600,000, depends how you uh, count them, first generation, their offspring. Uh, was there a real willingness on Israel's part uh, in order to get to the end of the conflict and, and uh, the end of claims, to do its part in giving uh, Palestinian refugees free choice to decide whether to settle within Israel proper, not in the West Bank? There was no such discussion at all, at all, in my working group. Uh, and in fact, you have to keep in mind that while we were discussing with the Palestinians and Jordanians different important issues in different working groups and plenaries, etc., at the background, Oslo started boiling. So this is, this is going to be our starting point. For our second conversation, in the meantime, Ambassador Ronnie Leshnoyar, thank you very much for a fascinating discussion. And we will be back uh, soon with another edition of Watchmen Talk. This is TV7 News in Jerusalem. Goodbye. Goodbye. 
Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.